This week on WealthTrack, a rare interview with noted value investor Tom Russo on why the ability to say no and the capacity to suffer are key to investment success. Next on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. Do brands still matter? In the U.S., the great disruptor known as Amazon, with its cheaper prices and fast delivery, is wreaking havoc across a wide swath of consumer brands, products, and retailers. Amazon is touching everything from books to food to household goods to entertainment to wine, and with its offer for upscale grocer Whole Foods, is going retro into traditional bricks and mortar. Now one of the world's most valuable companies, it is hard to believe it only went public two decades ago. Amazon is the biggest online retailer in America with a lot of room to run. Its e-commerce site accounts for about 5% of U.S. retail spending, still half of Walmart's, but catching up fast, and it is capturing over half of all new spending. 17% of all retail sales are now done online, more than triple what they were a decade ago. This week's guest investment specialty is global consumer brand name companies. He faces two headwinds right now. One is that he is an active manager at a time when investors are overwhelmingly choosing passive. And the other is his focus on well-established brand name companies that are under competitive assault from Amazon and others. He is noted value investor Thomas Russo, who is making a rare television appearance on WealthTrack. He is the managing member of the investment advisory firm Gardner Russo & Gardner, which he joined as a partner in 1989. He oversees more than $11 billion of separately managed accounts and Semper Vic Partners, a limited partnership. The global value long-term oriented portfolio has beaten the S&P 500 handily over the last quarter century. I started our conversation asking him about an issue he recently raised with his investors that, quote, the broad switch to U.S. equity market indexation, which has grown at a torrid pace over the past four years, has driven capital away from the internationally based businesses that form the core of our portfolio, end of quote. What's his strategy to deal with it? Well, the, the um, strategy that you use to deal with capital flows is you just have to endure them. Um, over time, our portfolio companies should deliver results. They're building the intrinsic value that they have on a per share basis through reinvesting internationally and doing so with a long-term mindedness. And over time, the market's a weighing machine and not a voting machine. And, and the investment benefits of what takes place will be expressed in higher prices. But even though it, 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 a voting machine, it can still be a voting machine for several years. Absolutely. And, and you know, you have a fabulous long-term track record, yes, which we, I mentioned yes. in the introduction to you, but the last few years yes. have been, you know, you're making money for your clients, yes. but you're not beating the market. Yes, no, it's... it's so it's, how long can this, you know, voting machine last before it turns into the weighing machine where you think the intrinsic value yeah. of your companies are going to be recognized yeah. by the market? As you may have seen, at year-end, I sent a letter out and, and referred to um, the, the same reality, and, and, and which is um, three mid-single-digit years of performance in a row, which is perfectly reasonable against right. the backdrop of 1% treasury rates and whatever else you see and up against many other investors. It's not keeping up with, at this moment, the S&P, let's say. Right. But massively outperformed um, international indices. 
and 70% of our assets are non-US, and so you, you would have to think against what benchmark, first of all. But the more important question is that we can deliver, I believe, over time, um, good results, but not on time. There's absolutely no way to, to sort of clock the, the performance. It just happens as, as the market capital flows move. But the actual performance is going to be based on the, the ability of our business to reinvest and to create more future wealth, more jam tomorrow, uh, for example. And, 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 and that's what, what we focus on. Right, so what about this indexation trend and yeah. I mean I some I feel like it's a craze quite yes. honestly and you're seeing money flows as you told your shareholders yes. you're seeing money flows come from overseas yes. into US indexes yes. as well sellers so, of Unilever shares because they want to own the domestic market it, it, it heated up particularly at the end of last year and sort of a cathartic move um, as people want to catch the Trump bump and right so with the with the transfer of assets from Euroland to the US the dollar strengthens because the euros to buy into the S&P have to buy dollars first, and hence there's a movement upward in the dollar, uh, which, which rewards global investors for a while. It all works for a while. It's, it's, it's a consensus move, and I can right. only think back to 1989. And, and in 1989, you would have had a period of time uh, when the Nikkei Dao went up with the smoothest position of any any recorded market in history. And it went up every, every quarter smoothly. It was never volatile. And it, at the top, hit 32,500. Um, uh, subsequently collapsed 75%. Now, all along the way, it was beating all of the uh, active managers. And so um, there's no reason to think that indexation, just because to date, it has generated outstanding returns without stumbling. It'd be as if you were saying in 1992, after the, the three years after 1989 and the Nikkei Dow, that it continued to advance. You could have said there, look, it's been now 40 months worth of steady advance. Um, it's, it's outperformed anything else. Right. Um, but it was getting ever more expensive. Right, and, and that's, that's what's what, happening. And in our time today, the expense aspect is so driven and complicated by the low interest rate environment that's held by the Federal Reserves around the world to try to stimulate economies that can no longer govern themselves in a way that can drive Keynesian-type mm -hmm. investments to better the nation. Instead, we simply rely on the Fed with right. low interest rates to try to trigger job growth. And that blunt instrument um, has all sorts of uh, secondary effects right. that show up in the investment business. And one is that equities just have gone upwards in valuation. Let's talk about Amazon and the disruption effect. Yes. You know, you can call it creative destruction yes. or creative disruption, yes. which is probably a better term. You specialize in global brand name companies. Yes. And Amazon is attacking brand name companies yep. in this country. Yep. And it, it has repercussions all over the world. It really does. How are you dealing with that? Yes. I mean, what, what, what did, how do brand name companies yep. look given this disruptive force? Yep. Let's, let's step back for a second and, and revisit Berkshire's annual meeting this year. If there was one sentiment that I took away from this year's annual meeting for Berkshire, it had to do with a, a sense of remorse on the part of Warren and, and uh, Charlie Munger um, over this notion of, of Amazon. Because for all the years up until now, 
the, the given word was, look, we, you know, Amazon's rather technical. We don't do technology. Right. Therefore, we don't do Amazon. Therefore, let's continue doing exactly what we do. Um, and to, at the annual meeting this year, I had the distinctive uh, feeling of, of a game that I used to play uh, years ago called Hearts. It's a card game. Yes. And at some point in the game, people are moving cards around, and somebody will have created a sequence in their hand that well before the hands actually played out um, secures them the certain victory. At which point their, their colleagues look at them and say, you're going to shoot the moon. And Walmart, uh, Amazon, in some sense, has shot the moon from the standpoint of why now Berkshire spends so much time talking about it. It's because it's nothing to do with technology. In fact, going back over time as I've done since the meeting and listened to all of Jeff Bezos' various speeches, He's all about the number one thing that Buffett would care the most about, which is customer service. And explain that, because he, Bezos yes. had a line um, that, that, that you quoted and, and that uh, Warren Buffett quoted, right? Oh, absolutely. But it's, if you ever listen to any of the lectures or, 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 or talks of, of Jeff Bezos, right. it's clear the only thing he's preoccupied by, not, 24 hours a day, um, is the consumer experience. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then he said his job is simply to reason backwards from what steps it'll take to improve the consumer experience and that directs his investment spending. That's purely the Charlie Munger story. He has said at the annual meeting for decades that the way to uh, live your life is, is through the power of inversion. Think of what it is that you want to create and then reason backwards to come up with the most efficient way to get there. That's Charlie Munger in spades and that's exactly what Bezos is talking about. Now, how does it ex- express itself competitively? So um, they now have 440 uh, fulfillment centers uh, within arm's reach of consumers. Right. So forget about the notion of the expensive FedEx package that has to fly all over the world to get to you to deliver you below-cost products. It's no longer, uh, it's no longer third-party source. It's increasingly uh, near a town Amazon truck delivered with massive uh, distribution uh, and logistics efficiencies that have only now started to take effect because of this um, network effect. They have such a broad network, it becomes impregnable mm-hmm. and it becomes a competitive uh, advantage. Now, so talk about a brand name, Tom. I mean, should you yeah. be owning Amazon? Well, it's a, it's a very good question because the valuation feels high. I would say that you know, what I talk about as investors, I want to find business that have the capacity to reinvest. Right. Amazon has, Amazon has 60% of e-commerce in North America, and e-commerce in North America may be 12% of total. So, I mean, they have, call it 5 or 6% of right. commerce now. It's, it's still early days yes. for them to enjoy the benefit of the investment spending that they've been making for all of these years. So, um, it's, it's possible. But it's not a global brand yet, right? Is that? Uh, it, it's, it's been busy in the U.S., let's yes. just say. Um, one saving grace for our portfolio is that most of the businesses that we own have alternate routes. Um, in the case so in, of someone like Nestle, for example, right. you know, um, someone like Budweiser, someone like uh, Heineken, someone like um, uh, Nespresso. Nespresso has its own dedicated cafes through which you experience a product and through which you reorder the product. They have a digital reorder. They have a telephone reorder for their products. So they have purposely put together businesses that are outside the reach of traditional retail. Right. The threat that Amazon offers retailers today is really a 
an elaboration of the threat that Walmart posed already for the past 25 years, which is the growing pressure for private label in forums that Walmart controls. So if you go into a Walmart, um, you will see a vast expanse of private label knockoffs of Nestle's finest products. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and That's a, a threat. discount price, and right? It's a, but it's a threat that we live with. Um, uh -huh. uh, now it'll be a bigger threat when Amazon gets around to it because his his model is more efficient than Walmart's. Right. Because Walmart's had you know, they have one and a half million square foot distribution centers in the middle of nowhere that used to have trucks that bring everything to the superstores that were in your neighborhood. Well, those superstores have become effectively unshoppable. Because if you want to go in there and buy milk and groceries, you have to go through the, the snow shovel department. You have to go through all this other right. stuff. Um, yeah, so Amazon uh, is a much more efficient deliverer. One of your major holdings is Nestle. Yes. And Nestle has just hired a new CEO, Mark Schneider, yes. who has no background whatsoever in food and beverages. And it, he's from a healthcare company or something, yes, right? Yes, exactly. Presented. Nestle is, was targeted by Dan Loeb, an yes. activist investor. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Nestle's shaking is shaking things up, is being shaken up. Yes. Yeah. What's your view of Nestle? Well, you know, the background, well, it's, it's a fabulous enterprise. Yep. It has global reach. It's 150 years old. It has 125 markets. Um, you, you think about markets, whether it's Nigeria, whether it's Kenya or India, um, their products are literally the staples of life. And companies as strong and as, as uh, uh, deep in domain expertise in food beverage uh, that, that exists in Nestle are going to be required for us to, to mm -hmm. uh, feed the world. So mm -hmm. uh, no question they have an important role to play in the future. Uh, uh, the question is how, how much they can afford to um, uh, invest today at the expense of current results. Yes. For future returns, and they're feeling and they're willing, the heat. They they feel the heat today because someone's come along and said, "Enough today, we we need more today." And Dan that's Lowe. jam tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about jam today or jam tomorrow. And there's an IRR that's built into the into the mix, and um, and Nestle has always favored gold-plated spending for the future returns. And and you know, if you look back since we've owned it in 1987, it's probably compounded at 14 percent a year total return. And it's, um, and, and it's done so because they've been willing to take those big bets and they've won uh, the results that have come from it. Um, now today, what? Today there's pressure on, on uh, the demands for returns up front. I mean, they've already announced a $20 billion share purchase program that they, that they actually commenced before uh, the publication by third point of their stake. And, and you told me yeah. before this interview yes. that, that how unusual that is, and actually Switzerland looks down oh, upon that they had to petition for a special yes. permission yes. To, to do a stock buyback. Yes. I mean, it's completely against their yeah. business culture. Yes, they're such, they're such capital-oriented folks in Switzerland that the notion of destroying equity capital by giving cash out to retire it um, requires a vote mm -hmm. by the by the Securities Exchange Commission equivalent because they so lament the thought of getting rid of hard-earned equity. Uh, nonetheless, the math is very compelling. Uh, they have a very low uh, leverage ratio at the moment, and so today's a fine time to borrow, and the shares, I, I believe, 
um, will represent fine value over time if they apply some of the borrowings to buy back shares. Capacity to reinvest is yes. one of the the hallmarks that you said that you look for in a in a company. We yes. just talked about that at Nestle. And also the other one is the capacity to suffer, yes. which means that you reinvest and you suffer short-term. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, your results aren't as great because you're yeah. putting the cash uh, yes. basically back into the company or yes. the businesses. So one of the examples of yes. the capacity to suffer yes. is Philip Morris. Yes. And that's uh, one of the ones in the capacity to reinvest. Can yes. you tell us what the story is with Philip Morris sure. and, and why sure. that is a core part of your portfolio? Yes. I, I'd be glad to. And, and what, what's really interesting about the capacity for management to suffer as it relates to the reinvestment process. First, the most important thing, you have to have the, the capacity to reinvest. Um, the beauty about the businesses that we try to find have open-ended reinvestment opportunities geographically. And, and with population, 96% of the world lives away from the US. You'd like to increase your odds of success by finding markets beyond our shores. Right. That's really the driver. And Philip Morris is the, is the largest premium cigarette manufacturer in the world. So they have plenty of space in which to invest worldwide. However, the historic problem, the product on which they have relied um, has harmful, harmful side effects. Um, they uh, want to stay in business, and they resolved four years ago that they would invest a substantial amount of their then abundant profits to help them transition from a business that was going to, over time, die right. into one that, that they could transition to. So they committed to spend half a billion dollars a year to come up with products that were non-combusted. Right, and they're called RRPs, Reduced Risk Products. products. Yeah. And, and the beauty of, of what they embarked upon is that others didn't follow. I mean, they basically um, spent the money. And, and you understand what it means is that their reported profit would show $500 million less than it could have had they not been investing purely on the science. Uh, now, what, what did they come up with? They came up with uh, 1.8 million pages of clinical data that they presented to the FDA to get approval by the FDA, ideally, uh, that would recognize that this product um, has the substantial equivalency of, 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 of smoking cigarettes mm -hmm. without the harmful effects. And, it, and it's, it's, it's IQOS, I-Q-O-S. Yeah, yeah. And it's not a vapor cigarette, it's not, no, right. No, and that's one of the side issues with the capacity to suffer. Um, it applies to the um, burden of doing something, but it equally applies to management's willingness not to do something. And that's where it gets really interesting because you know, Wall Street clamored for Philip Morris to get on the e-cigarette yes. train, and they refused to commit the kind of capital because they felt it was bad technology. And the reason is that if you're a smoker, you, when you initiate smoking, you end up at something like 19 milligrams of nicotine within the first minute um, of, of, your, of your smoking. Uh, E-cigarettes, by contrast, would deliver two. Oh, and right. so Just if you, you think the, about what a hit. consumer wants and what they can deliver, uh, and they can't deliver more because of battery technology and, and the way that the, 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 um, the aerosol goblets are created and go through the, the, the throat and all the rest, there are reasons why it's capacity constrained. And for that reason, Philip Morris had the capacity to step away and say, no. It's not, it, it won't be our, 
capital commitment to, to try to improve that unimprovable basis. Right. But they did go off into a different venture, and that's turned out to have some extraordinary receptivity. In the markets in which they first launched this product called ICOS uh, in Japan, um, they have as much as 30% market share of what was formerly the cigarette market converted to the ICOS. And this is extraordinary. Therefore, the outlook for Philip Morris, well, they have reinvented the yeah. cigarette, essentially, yes. yep. into well, a like, product that delivers the nicotine, but without the harmful exactly. effects. Yep. 99% reduction in the, in the burning-related uh, carcinogens, uh, right. uh, with 98% of the same satisfaction of nicotine absorption. So it's the equivalent of smoking with the equivalent of quitting. And, and the equivalent of quitting is substantiated by 1.8 million pages of, of clinical uh, data that the company has uh, submitted, Philip Morris has submitted to the FDA. So we'll see how that, that avenue of, of, of third-party accreditation uh, evolves. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, what would you have all of us own some of? Well, it's an interesting question because as a value investor, you know, price matters a lot. Uh, as a... Uh, uh, investor who cares about the very longest term because most of my investors are taxable individuals mm -hmm. uh, and we want to buy businesses that have the ability to reinvest for a long haul um, so that, that we don't need to sell the positions and trigger gains. Um, uh, I look for uh, more than just low price and so uh, one of our higher priced portfolio holdings is MasterCard. And yet, that's probably the one I would suggest. Um, I would suggest it because it's global at its very core. It's, the mo it's, it's far more internationally leveraged uh, than would be its much larger counterpart, Visa. Um, it's run by uh, one of, I think, the country's leading CEOs named Ajay Banga, who, who sort of started at Nestle in India, then he, then he was an extremely senior, successful executive at Citibank, and came across maybe seven years ago when I first invested in MasterCard. Uh, um, it was because of his arrival. And, and he has been exactly what we had hoped, which is um, absolutely um, prepared to invest way beyond an average dosage uh, to keep MasterCard at the leading, bleeding edge of technology in fintech. And so um, every, every year since we've invested, the gross dollar volumes of the business have grown low double digits. And, and the operating margin is relatively static, which means that all the leverage that comes from the increased volume has been redeployed back into investment spending that will hopefully come up with products. Now, the products they've come up with, they have um, they've helped countries uh, um, uh, digitally deliver social benefits to the, the uh, deserving mother mm -hmm. without having to send a check, which gets you know, um, massively discounted when she has to go cash the check. Um, it's secure. It's a secure channel for countries to distribute benefits. MasterCard's uh, participating in helping that. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a secure way for governments in emerging markets to begin for the first time to collect taxes. Because any government that, that, that doesn't have uh, the, the benefit of a, of a, of a country with um, um, uh, saintly, saintly souls um, realizes that Nothing's reported. Yes. So they get no revenue. Um, and so the migration for payment systems uh, at the behest of governments has the ability for them to start to the first time collect um, tax, tax receipts. All right.
We're going to have to leave it there. Tom Russo, thank you so much for joining us on Wealth Track. Thank you. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is read The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon by Brad Stone. If you are as fascinated by Amazon and its founder Jeff Bezos as I am, this is a biography worth reading. Bezos wouldn't be interviewed himself, but he gave Stone permission to talk to family, friends, and business associates, which he did. It's a fascinating insight into a brilliant visionary and entrepreneur who named his company after the river that blows all other rivers away and has what Stone describes as a limitless spring of new ideas, evidence of which we see every day. Well, next week, we're going to focus on the supposed return to normalcy by central banks and what it means for interest rates and bonds with two outstanding fixed income managers, Western Asset Management's John Bellows and Brandywine Global's Steve Smith. In the meantime, check out our extra interview with Tom Russo about why he makes an annual donation to a different charity every year on behalf of his firm. Also, thank you so much for the feedback on Facebook and Twitter that you are giving us. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.